seen Jesus in his physically resurrected body. Now, again, please let me know if you've had that experience. We might need to refer you to someone, but it's not likely that most that any of us have actually seen him in his physically resurrected body. One of the most important truths that this story about Tim Thomas reveals to us is that doubt is not only a common enough reaction to the Easter story, but that God understands and accepts this. Further, this story reveals the best way to deal with doubt. Now, we have all heard that sad nickname that our doubting Thomas received because of his initial response. But that moniker has done a lot of harm in understanding how Thomas's doubt was received by his fellow disciples and, more importantly, by Jesus himself. Thomas certainly makes his skepticism known. In verses 24 and 25, again, Thomas, the one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. They, as I said, he, they kept telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. As is often the case, uh, the English translation fails to capture the intensity of Thomas's words. Thomas didn't say it in somewhat gentle manner of, you know, unless I put my finger on his wounds and put my hands on the spot. Thomas says something more along the lines of, unless I jam my finger into the hole, into the wounds from the nails, and jam my hand. I mean, that's the, the verb that's used here. If I stuff my hand into his body where the spear cut him open, I am never going to believe. That's the intensity with which Thomas doubted what they had seen. But even though Thomas was belligerent in his disbelief, notice where he was with, and with whom he was as the story continues. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. A week later, they were all together again, and Thomas was there. Thomas was gathered with the other disciples, even though he didn't believe them and made sure that they knew he did not believe what they had told him. The disciples didn't kick him out of the group and say, okay, well, until you believe, you can't be with us. No, they continued to embrace him in their communion, in their community. And then Jesus himself comes in, and he almost immediately turns to Thomas. There's very little preliminary. Peace be with you. Okay, Thomas. But similarly, Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, get out of here. You, don't believe, you didn't believe the first time, even though they told you, get out of here. Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus invites Thomas to do all that he said he would need to do in order to believe. I agree with Merrill Tenney, a, a former uh, professor at Wheaton College, 
that I don't think Jesus said this sarcastically. I don't think Jesus said this with, with sort of an anger in his voice. Instead, as Merrill Tenney writes, Jesus volunteered to submit to every test that Thomas had demanded. The fact that Jesus knew what Thomas had said when he was not present was convincing proof of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. And his willingness to accept Thomas on his own terms was a marvel of condescension and compassion. This story reveals that Jesus not only accepts doubt, in some ways he expects doubt. Again, after Thomas, he he offers himself to Thomas. Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus acknowledges that it will be even more difficult to believe in him for those like us who haven't seen his body, his physically resurrected body, and who won't ever see his physically resurrected body, at least until it'll be clear to everybody. So this story reveals that doubting the reality of Jesus risen is to be both expected and accepted. And this story also reveals the best way to deal with that doubt. Many commentators agree that the key is found again in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus had been raised to new life on a Sunday. One week later would have been another Sunday, the next Sunday. We don't know very much about what happened on those days in between. But John, writing this, makes sure that we know that they all gathered again on Sunday, the next Sunday. And Thomas was with them. And Jesus showed up and Thomas believed. I don't often make a big deal about attending church. I don't often say, you know, see you next Sunday or come on, you should all be here. Mainly because I don't want to sound self-serving. So I'm going to allow someone else to tell you that. (laughs) Dale Bruner, former professor from uh, Whitworth, Whitworth College in Spokane. Dale Bruner writes, the point of this week later meeting in John's intention is clearly this. Jesus put in, puts in appearances to his disciples from the very beginning as he does paradigmatically here, especially, not exclusively, but especially at the Sunday meetings. This loyalty to the weekly meetings is no little part of loyalty to and abiding with the risen Christ. And mundane as this loyalty may seem, it holds the promise 
of the Lord's proving himself to our always slightly incredulous hearts in some special, crucial way. Thomas was with them this time, and the Lord will proceed to meet him, not privately, but in this public, churchly, regular space. This is part of the anti-mystical or anti-privatistic, anti-merely individualistic emphasis of John's gospel, where the, as John puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Bruno notes, not the word became a ghost and dwelt in secret places. We can't do this alone. As followers of Christ, we can't. And we were never meant to. It is vital for us to gather together in Christ on a regular basis. Others have said this type of thing long before Dale Bruner or myself in our Hebrew First Testament reading. Even though the Sabbath was a Saturday on, on those days. Uh, this idea, again, that the importance of community, two are better than one. If one falls down, the friend can pick the other up. Pity the one who falls alone. Though one may be overpowered, two can de defend themselves. And then this curious, and, and no one knows whether this was just a common phrase uh, or if there was something maybe more uh, prophetic in this. But this idea that even though they've been, the, the teacher Koheleth has been talking about two, the very final bit is a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is not about coupling. This is about community. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. We now have access to the holy place where God is. Jesus cleared the way by his sacrifice, acting as our priest. The curtain into God's presence is the body of Christ. So let's, let's do this full of belief, content that we are presentable inside and out. Let's keep a firm grip on the promises that keep us going. He always keeps his words. Let us see how inventive we can be in encouraging love for and with one another and others. Let us see how inventive we can be in helping out each other. Not avoiding worshiping together as some do, even, see, even from the very early times, making it on Sunday mornings wasn't the easiest thing to do. This is acknowledged. But let us spur each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. For over 2,000 years, followers of Christ all over the world have gathered together on Sundays to be in communion with God in Christ and with one another. The look of the spaces that they've gathered in has been different. They gather and we gather at other times as well. But almost without fail, we meet on that day of the week that commemorates the day that Jesus rose. 
And we gather with the expectation that Christ will be here with us. It can still be hard to believe that it's all really true. And that doubt is okay. But the best way to deal with our doubts is together. Christ will show up. Thanks be to God.